Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific Northwest. Today is very happily entering the first day of March. March is a rather grand month. Now, last time we were talking about pancreatic exocrine insufficiency as it related to type 3 diabetes. So I want to do that, um, some final discussion, and then move on to continue our general consideration of diabetes in the plenum of metabolic and physiological diseases that are associated with obesity and various, shall we say, forms of diabetes. Okay, so last time we're talking about the fact that there are many factors that give a higher prevalence of this PEI, the pancreatic exocrine insufficiency that you see in diabetes, either type one or type two, and that it's really not clear whether or not this PEI, if it's even discovered upon screening in clinical practice, is going to be able to be treated. Now, there is something called pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, or PERT, it's actually some over-the-counter material, which probably isn't um, normally considered the best way to go, but it's there. Now, when you study this and you look at PERT, um, it does improve the response of a couple of things. It increases the incretin activity. So remember, that's GIP and GLP-1. And because of that, you also get a heightened insulin response, particularly postprandial. But the glucose profile does not necessarily mimic the insulin induction. And again, that's because of this um, huge fluctuation in glucose transport and uptake because of the insufficiency of digestion. Right? So normally we think about diabetes, we're thinking about insulin-dependent uptake, particularly in adipose, particularly in skeletal muscle. That's where it's the major influence for whole body homeostasis for glucose. But here I'm explaining to you that when you have a problem with inflammation of the pancreas, they can be directly related to obesity and confounded by any number of the three diabetic forms, one, two, and three, with obviously a lot of um, consideration for the comorbidities within those three, that you have to understand that these incretins um, are very significant because they're, of course, associated with insulin um, potency, I think is the best way I would put it. But that doesn't mean that you're going to get a regulation of glucose uptake. So you're going to have these massive fluctuations in glucose uptake. And obviously, this is going to cause dysbiosis in association with dyslipidemia because the adipose tissue is not going to be generally taking in glucose and converting it to tricyclycerol. Right? So as I told you last time, you can get a complete corruption of the uh, lipoprotein profile, which could further exacerbate oh, atherosclerosis or cardiovascular disease. Uh, as well as all the solid organ disorders, such as hepatitis, pancreatitis, kidney disease, right? And we've talked about these things often. 
So <clears throat> it looks like if you try to do pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, this would be the elastases and the lipases uh, and the chemotrypsin and the trypsin, right? These enzymes involved in digestion. Um, you don't get the kind of profound recovery from uh, the exocrine insufficiency that you might expect, right? Because if, if you define it only as fecal elastase one concentration uh, getting back into normal levels, it does not always result in that, even when you're using uh, enzyme replacement. That's probably because enzyme replacement is going to be dealing with uh, recombinant proteins, recombinant enzymes, and those are going to be more labile perhaps to enteroproteases and exoproteases are going to be in circulation or within the cell. Okay. And you also have to worry a little bit about taking in polypeptides because they can act as antigens and induce, that's correct, an inflammatory response. They can actually can be life-threatening depending on the potency of the antigen um, and whether or not it's turning on uh, the innate immune cells through toll-like receptors or not. Right? Okay. So it's expected that eventually the um, enzyme replacement therapy could work in conjunction with insulin um, supplication as well as good glycemic control because that seems to be the major problem with PEI. And you get this with all diabetic patients, particularly if they're obese. So this is something that's going to continue to be looked at and also possibly treating with incretins themselves. This is a very expensive pharmacotherapy. And because it's the results of it are not always a therapy that will lead to a remedy or certainly not a cure for people that have diabetes, um, it's often on a cost-benefit analysis not considered to be the first line of therapy. Normally, the first thing you do is right, try to get... Uh, glycemic um, homeostasis under control, and then the work with insulin uh, supplication, and then maybe looking at some of this enzyme activity. Okay? So that's unfortunate because it's very likely that it's occult disease, which often goes again undetected until farther along in a clinical setting for at least type two diabetics. Type one diabetics might be picked up earlier because of the scanning is often done with the younger uh, population. Um, it means that the pancreas can become inflamed way before um, the insufficiency is determined. But I want to, I want to leave it with that. And then I want to go on to tell you or remind you, I should say that <clears throat> this is all about lipid metabolism, even though we talk about carbohydrates, that's because dietary lipids like cholesterol esters, phospholipids, sphingolipids, phospholipids, phosphosphingolipids, triacylglycerol are taken all the way into the small intestine without any real digestion, even in the stomach. There's some lingual lipase activity, but most of this ends up in the small intestine. And what has to happen is the uh, pancreas has to go to work as well as the liver to synthesize and secrete the exocrine enzymes and things like bile salts that are all going to be necessary, lipases and the bile salts, where the bile salts emulsify and the pancreatic lipases 
go ahead and degrade the dietary lipids. By the time then you're in the small intestine, you can generate the primary products, which are going to be free fatty acids, uh, a specific lipid called 2-monoacylglycerol or 2-mag, and free cholesterol. There's still going to be some phospholipid that is not digested. All that can get loaded on the chylomicrons and enter circulation. And as I told you before, the triacylglycerol and those chylomicrons can be picked up via lipoprotein lipase from the skeletal muscle uh, activity, epithelial cells, and also from adipose. But ultimately, those chylomicron remnants are going to re-enter the hepatic metabolism. In the end, you're going to get the VLDL lipoprotein fraction being turned on. Right? <laughs> so cholesterol esters, just to remind you, are the fatty acid is sterified to cholesterol. And there is an enzyme called cholesterol esterase, which you find on lipoproteins, actually, like HDL, which will remove the fatty acid and give you free cholesterol. Uh, lipids like phosphatidylcholine, um, when they're acted upon by lipases, which just means passing water over that ester bond, normally you're going to remove um, the first and second fatty acid and you're going to leave behind, if, if you can complete lipase, lipase digestion in the small intestine, you're going to leave behind a glycerophosphorylcholine. Now, that glycerophosphorylcholine can lose the phosphonylcholine, uh, and then you have glycerol, and then glycerol can be rebuilt to triacylglycerol and so, from acyl-CoA pools, generated because of lipase activity. This is all going down in the early phases of digestion, and being packaged on those chylomicrons. And if you just have triglycerol <laughs> and you remove two fatty acids, interestingly, the lipase activity is on the one and three position of the glycerol backbone, leaving that two monoacylglycerol. And then the two monoacylglycerol is retailored with new fatty acids in the one and three position, and that's what's packaged on the chylomicron. And the amino acids that are used to make the apolipoproteins for the chylomicron are generated from the proteolytic degradation of the proteins and also in that digestate from the nutrition that's taken in at the same time. So you got protein, carbohydrate, lipid typically in the diet. Now, let me switch gears a little bit and talk about cholangiocarcinomas. Now, what are these? These are heterogeneous uh, malignancies, obviously. And they're found throughout the biliary tree. And they're classified according to where they're found anatomically. So you've got intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma, and that comes from the proximal to the second order bile duct. Then you have perihilar uh, cholangiocarcinomas, and those arise between the second order bile ducts and the insertion of the cystic duct into what's known as the common bile duct. And then you also have the distal extrahepatic, and that arises in the insertion of the cystic duct and the ampulla of Vater. So it's a little bit of anatomy for you, a little bit of uh, GI anatomy. Now, all this anatomical classification is still used particularly by surgeons, right? And also by uh, regular GI docs, right? is particularly when you start discussing tumor growth. So with tumor growth, 
patterns, you get mass forming, periductal, infiltrating, or intraductal carcinomas. And you also can talk about simply the cell of origin. So therefore, cholangiocytes, there's how you get cholangiocarcinomas, peribiliary glands, hepatic progenitor cells, or hepatocytes, sensitive stricto. All of those give you multiple ways to classify cholangiocarcinomas. And they're classified in different ways so that you can do predictive models for staging, for tumor behavior and tumor maturation to various stages, and ultimately to metastasis if that's what happens. Now, the incidence of intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma seems to be increasing in the population in the last, say, 20 years, where the perihylar and distal extrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas seem to be decreasing. And that may have to do with the increase in obesity, uh, if you think about the anatomy that we're talking about here. So incidence rates vary, of course, significantly amongst different uh, geographical regions. The incidence range from 0.45, for example, per 100,000 in a country like Switzerland, up to about 3.4 per 100,000 in Italy. So that's like a nine fold increase, right? The highest incident rates are in Asia, and that's believed to actually be associated with a liver fluke infection. There, and for example, in Thailand and parts of Vietnam, you can have 85 per 100,000. So that's a whopping higher level of this cholangiocarcinoma you find in Southeast Asia. Also, we should point out that much of cholangiocarcinomas are just simply underreported because they do not rise to the occasion of causing enough morbidity, at least in the early stages, for them to even be noticed and treated, particularly in low-income geographical regions. So the variation around geography has something to do with diet, has something to do with obesity or lack thereof, uh, but also for underreporting or overreporting, for example, Italy between Italy and say, oh, the Thailand Highlands, right? So these cancers follow the adenoma dysplasia carcinoma sequence of events in oncogenesis. And so the reason we don't have a full detail on that differentiated cholangiocarcinoma lineage is because there's multiple different cells involved in the disease. So as I just mentioned, you have the introductal, which are papillary neoplasms, and that's of the bile duct. And those typically are pretty straightforward. They, they show you a stepwise progression of oncogenesis uh, with increasing dysplasia, and that suggests going from an adenoma to a carcinoma. Right now, that's in opposition to the biliary intraepithelial neoplasias, and there you get a corresponding molecular and associated histological change that's shown in flat lesions of the bile duct, and that arrives arises directly from the cholangiocytes, and also from the peribiliary glands. So that gives, even when you look at that particular sequence of events a pretty clear suggestion uh, that you move, again, the neoplasias are 
are moving from adenoma to carcinoma. But the sequence of events and the staging isn't as clear as the first one was. So those are some important things to keep in mind if you are actually uh, a surgeon and you're working on these uh, diseases. So here's some risk factors for cholangiocarcinomas. First of all, cholestatic liver disease. So that would include primary sclerosing cholangitis, fibropolycystic liver disease, congenital hepatic fibrosis, Caroli disease, which I'm going to talk in a separate uh, lecture about, colidocal cysts, and biliary, biliary hematomas. Now, if you have liver cirrhosis, which can come from multiple types of etiology, you can get biliary stone disease as well, which is cholecystolithiasis, hepatolithiasis, and cholodoacolithiasis. The infections, I already mentioned liver flukes in Southeast Asia, but also, of course, those two culprits, hepatitis B and C, chronic typhoid disease, that's different than the episodic, uh, highly lethal typhoid disease, recurrent pyrogenic cholangitis, which I mentioned earlier, and human immunodeficiency virus as well can sometimes be linked to it. Inflammatory disorders themselves can induce cholangiocarcinomas. Those include IBDs, that is inflammatory bowel diseases, chronic pancreatitis, there you go, and even gout, which of course is an inflammatory disease associated with uric acid crystals, obviously. So let's talk a little bit about lipid absorption. First of all, you get directly into the bloodstream, glycerol and short-chain, medium-chain fatty acids. Now, those fatty acids are going to be associated what? with what? Serum albumin, most likely, right? Glycerol is going to be water-soluble. That's not an issue. You also have to think about the lymphatic system. You have my cells diffuse into intestinal cells. It's the reassembly of triacylglycerol packaged with protein uh, after amino acid um, uh, utilization to synthesize apolipoproteins to make chylomicrons. And I told you the first pass in circulation Goes, does not involve, does not involve the liver. Only the second pass when you get chylomicron remnants. Reminding you, I know some of you know this, wrote, there are four main types of lipoproteins. You have the LDL. LDL's major function is transported hepatic triacylglycerol and cholesterol. Cholesterol in the form of cholesterol esters, obviously. Liver regulation via gene expression and receptor turnover. Those are the high-density lipoproteins that are associated with that interaction. The LDLs also remove cholesterol from cells. They carry cholesterol to the liver for recycling, and they have anti-inflammatory properties. Now, most of that is associated with the HDL fraction, but only after the HDL interacts with the LDL in circulation. And that some of that has to do with movement of apolipoproteins which we've talked about in the past, and I can bring it up again if you ask. The next two are chylomicrons and VLDLs. Chylomicrons, remember, they're the largest and least dense of the uh, lipoproteins. They transport diet-derived lipids primarily as their job, and the liver removes the chylomicron remnant now uh, via receptor-mediated cytosis. The very low-density lipoproteins are very significant. because These are the ones that are going to be first packaging hepatic-associated triacylglycerol, 
phospholipid, sphingolipid, and of course, cholesterol and cholesterol esters. So VLDL apolipoprotein synthesis is not adequate. You're going to get a fatty liver. And this can lead to many of the diseases we've been talking about these throughout the diabetic arc. So in the intestinal mucosal cells, you have to, again, have protein breakdown along with the the dietary lipid, that is, because you have to generate amino acids in the right stoichiometry to synthesize the first apolipoprotein for chylomicrons, which is its actual parent apolipoprotein. And it's called B48. So after amino acids are used to synthesize a protein B48, now this would be obviously transcription translation, that protein will associate with phospholipids at the same time building this chylomicron. You're going to have two monoacylglycerol, which is left over after lipase activity, remember, from the small intestine. This is happening in the intestinal mucosal cell. <clears throat> and then the two monoacylglycerol um, will react with the enzyme acyl-CoA monoacylglycerol acyltransferase, and it'll happen twice. Only the second enzyme will be an acyl-CoA diacylglycerol acyltransferase, generating free coenzyme A reduced form, ultimately resynthesizing TAG or triacylglycerol. So now I've got apolipoprotein B48 and amino acid utilization to make that protein. You've got phospholipids and you've got triacylglycerol. Now, the only other component really to talk about is cholesterol. <clears throat> cholesterol will also pick up fatty acyl-CoA or fatty acids from fatty acyl-CoA with the enzyme known as acyl-CoA cholesterol acyltransferase, that's ACAT, again, producing reduced coenzyme A or COASH and that and the other products, cholesterol ester. So you've got triacylglycerol, cholesterol ester, apolipoprotein B48, and then the phospholipids, which include sphingolipids and glycerol. Uh, phosphates. All of that now will combine and organize as a chylomicron. Now remember, lipoproteins are not covalent the associating lipids with proteins. That would be proteolipids. So lipoproteins not covalent. And this has to do with hydrophobic interactions of the lipids, lipids the extrusion of water from the matrix of the interior of the chylomicron and the apolipoproteins acting as annular proteins to to circumcise and circle around multiple lipid micellar structures that are forming because of essentially biophysical dynamics. Uh, And the dynamics have to do with the extent of any polar head groups, the extent of any free hydroxyl groups associated with the lipids, the removal or the shunning of water, and then lipid-lipid interactions with hydrophobic interactions, um, and ultimately the protein organizing with those lipids, and then you end up with a chylomicron. So obviously the chylomicron is a lot more lipid than protein. So that's why I told you it's less dense, right? Floats very well in circulation, actually. So there are multiple other lipoprotein pathways to consider. There is HDL, VLDL, chylomicron remnants interacting with LDL, 
This is all happening in the hepatocyte. Then in circulation, you have HDL transferring apolipoproteins back and forth with VLDL, particularly apolipoprotein C2 is picked up by HDL, HDL, uh, excuse me, by VLDL from HDL. And that VLDL with ApoE, which is its major canonical apolipoprotein, along with ApoC2, which it gets from circulating HDL, that VLDL is now a substrate for lipoprotein lipase. That the, the product of that is glycerol plus fatty acid plus intermediate density lipoprotein, which will react again with lipoprotein lipase, making low-density lipoprotein. That low-density lipoprotein will bind to its receptors on non-hepatic cells, so peripherals, for example, adipocytes, as well as macrophages. And this LDL moving into the macrophage, once there is proteolytic degradation of the apolipoprotein and the cholesterol ester, the fatty acids removed, and fatty acids removed from glycerol or sphingosine backbone, you will now have interior lipids which can form um, mass, not mass cells, excuse me. They can form cellular structures called foam cells if they are taken up by epithelia or endothelia. And these can be the source of atherosclerotic plaque. That's why LDL is significant there. But you notice that LDL required HDL for synthesis as well as VLDL because of the apolipoprotein trafficking and IDL, right? So you know that some of the fatty acids can be taken up by muscle cell. We talked about that before through the CD36 pathway, for example. And the fatty acids can be taken up directly into the adipocytes. So major uh, considerations, HDL traffics apolipoproteins among multiple lipoprotein fractions in circulation. And the cholesterol ester is also transferred via the cholesterol ester transfer protein directly to HDL. And that's how the cholesterol ester makes it back to the liver for elimination. Uh, not, Not much else to really mention here. I already talked about what's going on in the intestine. Within the liver, there's a great deal of interaction between the chylomicron remnant and transferring some of its fatty acid or tricyclycerol directly to low-density lipoprotein. And this is both as low-density lipoprotein is being synthesized for VLDL biosynthesis by adding phospholipids and ApoB100. This is after the uptake of LDL remnants into the hepatocyte, interacting with chylomicron remnants. Uh, And so you get a lot of recycling of lipids from LDL fragments coming back into the liver along with chylomicron remnants. Both of those, LDL remnants, chylomicron remnants, the apolipoproteins associated with those, sometimes in endolysosomal compartments, so there's a low pH for activity of some of the lipases which require low pH, will help rebuild a apolipoprotein, lipoprotein fraction which includes HDL in the liver, as long as it picks up ApoE and ApoA1, and VLDL if it picks up ApoB100 and more phospholipid than HDL. So a little bit of the interaction that goes on. 
that um, I want you to keep in mind okay, for the lipoprotein fractions. So it's a, kind of a quick summary, which I think you are able to get the idea. We just re remember that you get what's called a reverse cholesterol transport from the HDL fraction uh, that comes from uh, basically phospholipid and uh, free cholesterol in association with the ABCA1 protein forming a pre-beta HDL or nascent HDL with free cholesterol, then reacting with phosphatidylcholine and the LCAT enzyme as um, LCAT. Now, what that does is transfer the phosphatidylcholine uh, diacylglycerol or some of the fatty acid and leaving lysophosphatidylcholine, right? So that's lysolepthacin choline acyl transferase. That's what the LCAT is. This is all taking the pre-beta HDL or the nation HDL and making a fraction called HDL3 in circulation. Now you've got a cholesterol ester associated with that. More cholesterol ester can be picked up from uh, adipose tissue, for example, or from muscle tissue, from free cholesterol, going through the LCAT reaction with PC, making lysopc, picking up the fatty acid directly from choline, making cholesterol ester, enriching HDL more with two fractions of cholesterol ester. Now you got HDL2. It's the HDL2, which then can lose its ApoA1, and the cholesterol ester will enter through the SRB1 receptor in the liver, dropping off cholesterol ester from HDL2. And you're also going to get the HDL lipase or the uh, lipoprotein, uh, uh, HDL lipoprotein lipase, which is going to release free fatty acids, going to go to the liver, 